<laughs> neurological basis of movement. Yeah. We're back. Um, we've been away for so long that Phil is now a full professor. <laughs> Seven years since we recorded the last podcast. Um, but it's going to seem seamless, right? We're going to go straight into it. This one is Neurological Basis of Movement, which you've been promising us for seven or eight years. Oh, I, I think we've been promising people. I wouldn't. It's, 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 this is on us to deliver seven years later, and it's not just on me. I'm just the sound man. I'm the fool guy. No, I no, ask no, the stupid no. questions. You're the guy in charge. You're the, the professor. The reason why we've chosen to I do this one, here. Samuel, is because there's a lot of anatomy, and in my lecture... I default and defer to your anatomical expertise when trying to explain this. So this is, uh, this is a joint effort. Yeah, when we teach this, it does overlap quite a bit. I do the stuff outside the brain and then say when we get into the brain, magic happens. And then you do the stuff inside the brain and then link it to stuff outside the brain. And terribly confuse students and then they do really badly in their exam. So we're going to fix that now, right? No, no, students don't do terribly badly <laughs> with this topic. I'm glad you recognise that the brain is where magic happens. We're going to talk, I'll talk about the functional bits. And you explain... The functional the, bit, what do you mean? It's all functional, isn't it? Well, there's a lot of wiring in anatomy, isn't I can it? do the wiring. Yeah, you talk about the wiring and the complicated bits and the multiple different tracts and why we have them and where they all go. All right, I'm doing this off the top of my head, you know. I haven't prepared for That's this at all. That's because to you're an expert genius. Right, we'll see how that pays off. We should probably also tell our dear listener that uh, there is a series of outstanding anatomical videos on YouTube featuring yeah. Dr. Webster. Nobody does podcasts anymore. We all moved to YouTube. Okay. Which <laughs> Years ago. Should we pack it in now and just do a video? Um, I'm not dressed for video. Doing doing video neurology stuff isn't easy either. Come on, come on let's crack on with this. So what, what are we going to cover? We're going to do... We're going to do stuff... In, where are you going to start? In the spinal cord or in the brain or in the muscles or what? I think what we want to be able to do is to explain to our listener how the nervous system is wired into the muscles good basically yeah and there is some there's four basic steps to that i think there's the final common pathway in the spinal cord where lower motor neurons are wired to muscles and sensory feedback comes back in there's upper motor neurons that are wired into those there's the cerebellum and associated structures that sort of error check and error correct in real time yeah and then there's the properly interesting stuff in the cortex which feeds into the upper motor neurons which in a way is is almost philosophical about um how we decide which movements should be enacted and on what basis and how we select our competing decisions and so on so we're saving the magic bit for the end let's save the magic till last all right go on then let's go so um i guess we need to start at the bottom and well, literally. Well, the, as far as the uh, neuroscience is concerned, yeah, the bottom of the spinal cord. Well, okay. So we're at the base of the spine, cord equina. We well, we are in a spinal segment, right? And within the spinal segment, as I've understood it from a functional perspective, you have basically what is known as the final common pathway. So any of the muscles that we move are wired into the spinal cord in some way, with a, a lower motor neuron coming out of the um, spinal cord onto the muscle and basically sensory input coming back into the spinal cord and that's it I can sense your uncomfortableness outside the brain but yes, absolutely um, there's probably some anatomical detail to that though perhaps our students would, could and should need to know about um, I mean just the concept of um, 
the lower motor neuron is essentially the the neuron that's coming out of the spinal cord and finding its way to the muscle. And where is it coming out of the spinal cord? Um, well, if you if you look at a section of the spinal cord, then it's got a dorsal root and a ventral root, and the ventral root is where all the motor stuff comes out of. So all of the neurons go into muscles, be they sympathetic or somatic or whatever, they're all coming out of the ventral, the ventral root. And the sensory stuff's going back into the dorsal root. Uh, we might have talked about this in another podcast, but that, of course, then explains why things like referred pain happen, because all of that stuff's coming in and out of the same section. Yeah. <laughs> Non-committal, yeah. <laughs> yes, but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, that's another, that's another rabbit hole. Um, okay, and I think I think it's important to explain that a lot of the anatomy that covers and governs all of these processes to someone whose interest is in more of the function of the nervous system, the anatomy seems wildly complicated, but actually that final common pathway is fairly straightforward. Yeah, it's just it's just wiring. It's like wiring a house. You've got wires going to different muscles and different parts of the muscle. You just bundle them together in your house so they're nice and convenient and tidy and that's what forms your peripheral nerves that's all the femoral nerve going to the quadriceps group is so we can think of our our dorsal and ventral roots as cable ties then, yeah more yeah. or less okay beautiful um so what happens then in i think the simplest way to explain what how the final common pathway works is with uh, a reflex arc yeah. So the knee jerk reflex or some other reflex. In the lecture we have on this, we have a description of the myotactic reflex. The let me hold on, I'm gonna have to refer to my notes here because it's there's anatomy involved. Uh, there's a ligament, patella ligament. He's frowning at me now. Because a ligament, it, that's your that's it, your field, it, isn't it, it mate? It does get called a patella ligament. It's more of a tendon, but then it's from bone to bone, so it gets called anyway. Sorry, yes, patella ligament, yeah. Yeah, so reflexes are important because they get tested clinically all the time, and it's a great way of testing not only the peripheral nerve, the lower motor neuron, but also the upper motor neuron's actions upon it, which we'll talk about later, right? Correct. Hey, yeah. check me out. But I think the, an important part of that, though, is, of course, that you have movement in terms of a reflex without necessarily conscious involvement. So if you think about picking up a, a cup that you just is far too hot or putting your hand on a pin or the knee-jerk reflex, there's movement there that where only that final common pathway, those spinal circuits, are recruited. Yeah. You don't think, this is hot, I'm skin is burning, I should probably drop this. You just drop it. So how does that work in the case of movement? Talking about the patella ligament and stretching that ligament or tendon and then the muscle contracting. Why does that reflex exist and how does that work? So how it works is you tap on the ligament. The ligament is obviously what the ligaments are all wired into the various uh, muscles, bones, etc. You stretch the quadriceps muscle which stretches a structure within the muscle called the muscle spindle. Right. And when the muscle spindle is, is stretched, it's a mechanosensitive structure um, within the muscle. When it is stretched to a certain point, it will fire off an action potential. Okay. And that action potential travels along the 1A afferent into the spinal cord, 
The yeah. one A afferent. Look at you throwing terms out like that. Yeah. So the one A afferent. I tried to sound knowledgeable. We, we have talked about these things these before, but the one A afferent then, that's a essentially a, a sensory neuron going from the muscle back to the spinal cord. Correct. Okay. And, and it's going into the spinal cord and saying, hold on a minute, there's stretching going on here. Okay. We've, we've moved. Um, simply what happens then is there's circuitry within the spinal cord there's interneurons within the spinal cord that are recruited and activated the net result of which is you have uh excitatory neurons that come out onto <laughs> you can tell i'm reading this can't you <laughs> you have a, a, an alpha motor neuron that projects directly onto the homonymous muscle and you also have um uh, neurons that project onto the heteronymous muscle. Do you want to pause briefly and explain homonymous and heteronymous? Oh God, I was going to say what you what you mean to say there is that. <laughs> and am I anatomically incorrect? No, no, it's, it's all it's all fine. There's just a lot of words in there. That's anatomy for you, though, isn't it? Um, yeah, the sensory neuron goes into the spinal cord and then it synapses with a little short relay neuron, doesn't it? Correct. And that one connects to the motor neuron that then goes out of the spinal cord and back into the muscle. So in the first instance, it goes into the muscle that's been stretched yep. and can tell it to do something. But also, if that muscle is going to contract, then the, the antagonistic muscle, the muscle on the, op- the opposite side, needs to relax. In the exactly. example used. Yeah. So often we just talk about a reflex. Um, so you stretch a muscle, then the reflex causes that muscle to contract, and then the joint, in this case the knee joint, extends. But you have to remember that the opposite muscle, the muscle doing the opposite action, has to relax for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so the reflex arc, the, the myotactic reflex is basically, there's a stretching of the muscle that's picked up by the, the sensory afferent. The net result of what happens in the spinal cord is that the motor neuron back onto that muscle says, okay, contract. So you've stretched, contract back to where you were. And then there's inhibition of the motor neurons that project onto the antagonistic muscle to say, all right, calm down yeah. and um, relax so that there's no damage incurred. And that's basically it. And that's the same thing we see on all the tendon reflexes that we test clinically. Yeah. Why does this reflex exist? <laughs> I, just, I just wondered for, neurologically whether this was a thing that gets talked about a lot. Um, when we talk about why this happens... We tend to use the uh, immediate avoidance of an aversive stimulus type examples. So when you step on a snake or a, you know, a sharp rock... But that's not using the stretch receptor in the muscle, is it? It's, that's it's, using a sensory thing from the skin. Yes, but it's still... It's a reflex which, me, which is evolved to take immediate action to immediately escape an aversive stimulus to avoid damage that would happen very quickly if you had to stop and think about it. Hold that thought, because do you want to talk about decussation later as well? We do need to talk about decussation. Right, because I've got, I've got an interesting theory which relates to that. So we'll put a pin in that, we'll come back to that. Okay, one. good, because when I wrote notes for this and said we need to try and explain why decussation happens, I was reminded that we talked about this a few years ago and agreed that we didn't know. We don't know, but there are some interesting ideas. We'll okay. come back to that. Let's park decussation. Yeah. So what about um, so what about the muscle spindle then? So the muscle stretch is it a protective thing? So the muscle starts to stretch and then it contracts to protect the muscle. Or? There's yes, I think that's part of it. Um, there's similar processes that happen in um, 
let me take a step back. So there are a number of sensory type receptors within muscles uh, and tendons and so on. Because you've got the Golgi tendon organ as well. That's exactly where I was going. So the example of what you're, an example of what you're talking about, the Golgi tendon organ, if, you, if one attempts to pick up something that is very heavy, particularly yeah. if one is not very strong like me, um, and you hold on to it for as long as you can, eventually you will drop it. And part of why you drop something that is very heavy, whether you like it or not, is because the Golgi tendon organ will eventually get triggered when you stretch tendons mm. through prolonged load. And to prevent tendons and muscles and other things tearing, once a Golgi tendon organ is activated, the, the spinal reflex that's activated there is to essentially to drop or to relax the the grip or the, the load on whatever it is that you're holding. So the muscle lengthens? It, uh, yes. I mean... the. Because that, okay, the, where I'm going with that is when you do a, a deep stretch, if you do a deep hamstring stretch what, to touch what, your wait, toes. Wait, 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 wait. So I'm sure our listener knows by now that Samuel is very much involved in physical activity, exercise, running, and things like that. Those of us who are not, for whom a brisk walk in the park is all their day's activity, what's a deep stretch? Well, you know, so when you, when you stretch a muscle, you hold that stretch for 25, 30 seconds, and then the muscle lengthens. I can't okay. remember if that's recruiting the Golgi tendon organ or not and, recover, and encouraging the muscle to lengthen. Okay. <laughs> um, it's What happens in, in, the, in the case that we're talking about, which I think the technical term is an inverse myotactic reflex, is to, rather than promote the contraction of said muscle, is to promote the inhibition of the alpha motion neuron that projects onto that muscle. That's a much better description of what happens. Yeah. You, you can tell I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in cold water here. No, that's, <laughs> it's deep. That, We're a long way from the cortex. That's good. Yeah, that explains succinctly what happens when you activate the Golgi tendon organ. Stretch yeah, a Golgi tendon organ. Yeah. Um, one of the things that our students struggle with, um, struggle to understand when I'm explaining it, and I can tell by the, the, the furrowed brows, the sea of furrowed brows that greets me, is um, the the gamma motor neuron. All right. What does the gamma motor neuron do? So there are two main types of motor neuron that, that are the innovate muscle. The alpha motor neuron, when activated, basically makes the muscle contract. It's okay. the way of thinking of it. Yeah. Um, the way that a muscle knows whether or not it's stretched or not is through the a change in the status of these um, muscle spindles. Yeah. And these are connective tissue, contractile tissue type structures within muscles that are sensitive to stretch. Yeah. Now, we may again be going, we are overstretching ourselves here, there's a pun hey. there, um, by trying to explain this purely using an auditory medium. But if you consider a muscle, say the bicep which obviously has quite a good range of yeah. how long it can be at any one time um, if you've got structures in there that are sensitive to the contractile state of the muscle i.e how long the muscle is when the muscle is um, contracted up yeah the spindles themselves are going to become flaccid right right you've got these stretchy springs inside the muscle yeah and when the muscle's all folded up the springs are going to be they're going to be floppy. They're not going to be sensitive to stretch. 
So what the gamma motor neuron does is it causes contraction of the muscle spindle. Okay, when does it do that? It does that in response to information around the contractile status of the muscle. All right, so it adapts the muscle spindle depending upon the length of the muscle. Exactly. That's that's quite cool. So the way I try to explain it, and I keep telling myself to bring a bungee into the lecture to do this, but I always forget. If you think about, and I'm, I'm acting this out for the benefit of our listener who can't see it, if you think about a muscle spindle as being a bungee, yeah. Okay, and so the bungee is under somewhat tension, you know, a bit yeah. of tension. It's yeah. it's it's what's the word for making it ping? It's taut. Right. And at th- when the muscle contracts, the ends of the bungee are going to be contracted in because the the spindle is wired into the muscle, and yeah. so the bungee is going to become flaccid. Yeah. What the gamma motor neuron does is it it prompts contraction of the muscle spindle itself, so it just pulls the bungee taut again within yeah, yeah. the muscle so that it can then ch- detect so it's still sensitive change. exactly very cool you're nodding like you've understood yeah i totally got that I, that's a new thing for me i hadn't heard all that right before. and if it's new to you then hopefully our listeners understood it too yeah and that's probably the most complicated thing to explain when it comes to the neurobiology movement and we've done it <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it probably gets worse inside the brain it's just you don't see it you're comfortable with it um, well, without wishing to jump ahead too much, it doesn't really because we don't know in enough detail to be practically useful to, to students of the health professions what does what and why, really. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, because I keep telling students that. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> okay, so that's the sensitive, that's the stretch-sensitive apparatus inside the muscle and the tendon yeah. and the reflex. Have we done musculoskeletal there? Yeah, is that is that everything you wanted to talk about there? No, I just I feel like I've I've not only have we gone beyond the the central nervous system, we've gone into like the biology of muscles, which yeah, 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 which we talked about with authority and confidence. Yeah, we're talking about microscopic structures there. Oh, okay, it's cool, it's good. And I'm guessing then, from an anatomical perspective, that system, the reflex arc, yeah, that that operates at pretty much every level of the spinal cord. From from for most muscles. Yeah, I'm going to put a stab in the dark and say, probably. Okay, I think that's a useful enough rule of thumb to have, that that final common pathway principle is how muscles are moved. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, we can, we can test a range of spinal levels by testing a range of reflexes in the upper limb and the lower limb. And if, you, if the guys listening to this don't know that, they can Google it. It's an easy list. To... No, no. They've Googled it and they've come to this podcast. No, that's the easy list to remember. It's a little table of the different tendon oh, reflexes you test and the spinal levels associated. Common okay. exam question as well. We love that exam question. Okay, good. Okay, so the more, from a neuroscience perspective, uh-huh. perhaps the more interesting part then is how we have voluntary control over that process. Right, upper motor neurons. The lower motor neuron is the motor neuron that is in that reflex arc, that final common pathway that comes out of the ventral root. When we're talking about lower motor neurons, which from a clinical examination perspective is obviously important, those are the motor neurons we're talking about. The motor neurons that allow us to exert voluntary control over that system are the upper motor neurons. And not just voluntary control over the reflex, but also we use so that our brain tells our finger to point at things. Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, but I think a simple way of understanding 
the organization of motor systems is that all movement happens via that wiring system with the lower motor neuron that we've talked about. Obviously, you've got reflexes, but any movement you make, it's the same motor neuron and sensory feedback, that same system. Yeah. Right? So Otherwise, whether you're just duplicating the wiring, which would be yes, daft. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, any voluntary movement we want to make, whether it be to try and prevent an, uh, a reflex arc or to, yes, poke somebody in the eye or kick a football or drive mm. a car, whatever it is, that comes down from the cortex, which, as we all know, is where all the interesting stuff happens. Yeah, we've heard that before. <laughs> Let's move on, listener. Um, the motor neurons, the neurons that carry the commands, the signals about what to do, are the upper motor neurons. They originate more or less in the cortex or in the brainstem, and they travel down the spinal cord. And, for example, the upper motor neurons that are responsible for the movement of the arm or certain muscles in the arm will then synapse onto the that reflex final common pathway system that is responsible for controlling the arm. Yes. And the upper motor neurons may synapse directly onto the lower motor neurons, but more commonly there is this network of interneurons within a spinal segment that controls the fine detail of who does what, where and when. Yeah. Any movement we make is shockingly complicated, but for the purposes of description, we just try to simplify it as best we can. We haven't actually talked about any of the interneurons within the spinal cord, have we? Other than the reflex. Do we need to talk about them, do you think? I don't think so. What do you think, listener? Do you want to hear about the interneurons of the spinal segment? It gets ugly. I'm, I'm loath to, to pass off as an explanation to our students some, the idea that something's just too complicated to talk about. But in Go reality... On Go on in. No, I think you're Nail right. It. I think there are lots and lots of interneurons within the, the spinal cord. They're often GABAergic inhibitory interneurons that will inhibit each other and the net result will be whatever it is uh, the voluntary command is desired to be. Yeah. But the precise sequence and circuit of who gets switched off and on, it just isn't isn't useful to know, I don't think. It's also a time thing. Um, people say my videos are too long, but if I included everything, they'd be like 10 times longer. <laughs> so you can't include everything. We can come back to this. We can put a pin in it, do another podcast on the detail. In another seven or eight years' time. No, no, we're still too far outside the cortex. Okay. okay, so you've got your upper motor neuron comes out of the brain, goes down the spinal cord, synapses with stuff, somehow triggers the lower motor neuron, which then runs off to the muscle and the muscle contracts. That's it. Easy. Um, the This is probably not a... Well, let's talk a little bit about where those neurons come from. So the primary motor cortex is right at the back of the frontal cortex. He's, no, oh no, that, that's it's just a, not very anatomical, is it? Okay. That's why you're here. Yeah, that's why this the, is going to work. Okay. So the it, frontal lobe yeah. is in the rostral part of the brain. It's anterior. Okay. So the posterior part of the frontal lobe then, we've got the, um, the central sulcus, haven't we? Correct. So right by the central sulcus, just anterior to it, or just rostral to that, that's the bit you're talking about now. What's it called? The primary motor cortex. Primary motor cortex. Has it got other names as well? The motor cortex will do, okay. actually. You still give a mark and an exam for motor cortex? I don't mark those exams, Sam. Okay, it's just so. me, yeah. <laughs> okay, right. Um, motor, yeah, mo- it is the motor cortex. Yep. Um, I guess we can leave our listener to decide whether um, 
back of the frontal cortex or whatever works for them yeah. or, or anterior, anterior part, part of, of the, the rostral part of the but it's it's in the frontal cortex in the frontal lobe it's part of that it is and and something we've covered many times before but of which this is another example the frontal cortex is one of the four main cortical regions of the brain and the frontal cortex is basically as simply as I can make it, the part of the cortex that decides what to do. And the frontal lobe is is your thing. It's, it's, it's all everybody's about everybody's thing. Yeah, but it's your thing in particular, decision making and impulse control and that sort of thing, right? So m- deciding to make movements is part of that system. Isn't exactly. It? It's all linked up together. Is that why it's in the same lump? And that's yes, that's exactly right. That's uh, you've got. I never thought about that before. You know that that's where your movement comes from, and this is where it's potentially even philosophical when. What defines what it is that you do is your frontal cortex assembling those commands, that program to send down your spinal cord to the to the lower motor neurons to say, do this uh-huh. and don't do this. What do you mean, don't do this? So what your frontal cortex is doing, and we've moved right to but the very end here. Are you is, still talking about movement? Yeah. Right, okay. But, of course, when you decide to pick the raspberry flapjack up, yeah. and take it to the counter, you're also deciding not to pick up the chocolate flapjack or the crisps. Or so you're saying that decision-making is linked into the motor thing? Yes. Of you deciding to not physically... Wow. So while we're up there then, while we're up in the, in the, um, the back part of the frontal cortex... <laughs> yeah, everybody knows where we are, it's fine. So that strip... Yeah. On the, the one side of the central sulcus, that is basically where the the, the motor commands are finally assembled. Okay, okay. That's where your upper motor neurons start, or at least lots of them do. Yeah. There are many, many other parts of the cortex that are important for motor control, Okay, but yeah. are not yeah. the motor cortex. Yeah. And a simple summary of what they do is that other, really the other bits that we've just talked about. Figuring out what not to do, which okay. motor neurons to shut down, perhaps oversimplistically, but um, assembling a command that is in one sense saying pick up the raspberry flapjack and is at the same time shutting down all of the other things that are pick up the chocolate flapjack, pick up the, the crisp, pick up the banana, whatever. Okay, so you're still talking about decision-making rather than a complex sequence of decisions about which muscles to contract and which muscles to relax so that you make a movement and don't fall over. Yes, but... It's, because yes. that's important as well. It is, and that's all, but that's also really not, not directly motor cortex. That's no. all still upstream of that. Yeah. Um, there's a huge amount of decision-making and other processing that happens before the final switches are set yeah. and the command goes down there and that but that's that happens in other parts of the cortex you, you hinting at basal ganglia and things like that no actually basal ganglia oh gosh so are we going to skip over basal ganglia no well you've brought we it up now haven't yeah. you um so we've talked about th- the first part of the motor system we needed to talk about is the lower motor neurons and the reflex arc the second part is the upper motor neurons that start in the motor cortex. The fourth part, which we've skipped ahead to, are the other cortical regions that are involved in decision-making and deciding not what not to do and and all the complicated, interesting stuff. 
There is a really a third part, which we haven't covered yet, which is in between those, which is more about things like error correction and movement initiation and other subcortical processes, which are therefore not so much about deciding what to do, but are very important for making sure that what does happen happens the way that it's supposed to. Yes. So the basal ganglia, if we had to summarize really simply what they do, is it's to initiate movement. Yeah. So So these are regions within the brain of, say we use ganglia, because terminology breaks down a bit. So we tend to say a ganglion outside of the central nervous system is a collection of nerve cell bodies. And then we say that that collection of nerve cell bodies inside the central nervous system is a nucleus. But these basal ganglia are what? Are within the central nervous system, but are called ganglia. But so they are collections of cell bodies and interconnect, interconnected neurons and stuff like that. I see your question, yes. Okay, welcome to, to anatomical terminology, listener. Um, these are the sorts of things people get hung up on, which is why I like to clarify as best I can. No, and that's that's important, and that's what you know. Taking a step back from it is, I see what you're coming from now, having taken a step back from it. Basal ganglia, you're right; they're not ganglia in the same way as the dorsal root ganglia are. So they're not just a collection of cell bodies with axons um, streaming off. Um, they are subcortical limbic system structures, so in evolutionary terms they're older than the cortex, that um, initiate and to some extent control voluntary movement. And if I, if I get a brain and I cut slices through it, I can see these, these ganglia, these regions of the brain. They stand out, they've kind of got edges. Them. Same with an MR scan as well. Yes, so they're physical I, things. They are. I don't know that they're physical things in the same way as dorsal root ganglia are because they're collections of nuclei sort of thing, uh, collections of cell bodies. But they are discrete structures. So you've got the caudate putamen, you've got the substantia nigra, yeah. um, the globus pallidus, things like that. And it, to let our listener in on a secret, we used to have lots and lots of content about the basal ganglia because they're really important for initiation movement. They're fundamentally important for Parkinson's disease. But the reality of it is, um, from a clinical perspective, Parkinson's disease is obviously really important. Parkinson's disease is anatomically and pathologically really simply the death or large-scale loss of function of one part of that, the basal ganglia, the substantia nigra. Um, substantia nigra makes dopamine. Dopamine is a volume control on movement in this context. And when you don't have it, you don't have the extra volume required to turn up the signal on a particular set of movements that you want to make, and so you find it hard to initiate movement. Oh, that's a good description. That's as simple as I can make it. Yeah, that last bit I don't usually um, consider. Yeah. Amplification, yeah, good. That, that's basically yeah. what it is, because you have a lot of, you still have multiple signals coming down uh, the spinal cord, even when you decided what to do, but the basal ganglia will chip in and turn up the volume on one or two of them. Um, and that's what gets you over the over the sort of activation energy of making a movement. Mm. And so people with uh, Parkinson's disease find it very hard to initiate movement because they don't have that function. Mm. And then once movement is initiated, they find it hard to exert the fine control over it, mm. which is, again, one of the things that the basal ganglia do. 
the other part of subsection three, really, the cerebellum, is probably... Cerebellum. Oh, there's a, there's a breathless whisper. Yeah. He likes the cerebellum. Well, it's kind of a... It's, yeah, it's a, it's a whispered about area, the cerebellum. Again, magical with movement. So the cerebellum um, stores complicated movements, stores learned series of actions and movements, that sort of thing. And that's one of its roles, is it? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's... Yeah, that's, that's one of the two main groups of things I think you could say that it does it's why don't you display your anatomical wizardry and tell our listener where it is so if you've got the brain stem the medulla the pons and the the midbrain the cerebellum is posterior to that and it's attached to the the pons and the brain stem so as I would tell our students it's stuck on the back yeah (laughs) (laughs) but it's I'm sorry listener but it's it's also important that it's um it's 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 largely attached to the brain stem rather than being directly attached to the the cerebrum yes yes and the, the the first thing that i tell the students the cerebellum is important for and, and possibly the most practically useful is error checking okay correction yeah in, in real time so we've talked a lot thus far about um, voluntary commands coming down the brainstem onto the in the form of upper motor neurons and then telling the muscles what to do. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about the first part of the feedback from that yeah. coming in the dorsal root in the form of, of sensory afferents. There is, of course, a whole set of tracts that then come back up the brainstem, spinothalamic tract and others, Yeah. which in simple terms tell the cortex and the cerebellum what has actually happened. So when I put a football down, and my intention is to run up to it and kick it into the top corner of the goal. Yeah. And I do that. Wow, that happens. No, it oh, doesn't. Right. The ball sort of goes in the general direction that I've intended it to at a speed far less than I intended it to. Uh, and various pieces of sensory information will then be relayed back to my um, motor cortex to say... Well, not to my motor cortex. My motor cortex eventually, but up to my somatosensory cortex to say... Okay, look, this is what you were supposed to do, and this is what's actually happened. Right. And that's an extreme example, it, but the same thing happens with all real-time movement. So I'm walking along, and my primary motor cortex is telling my leg to go here and my arm to go here, and more or less those things are happening, but there is real-time correction required to make sure that things are happening in exactly the way they're supposed to. So some of that is proprioceptive feedback, the position yes. of limbs in space, but also um, other senses, the, the shape of the surface you're stepping on and you've just stepped on a stone and the curbs coming up and stuff like that, right? Yes, and most of the stuff that I think you would think of as unconscious correction is, is the work of the cerebellum. You know, it's, right. it's comparing information about what's supposed to happen with what has happened, and then sending real-time corrections both up and down. Cool. Um, obviously, if you don't have a cerebellum, then you find it much harder to to, to remain steady. It's the simplest way of thinking oh, okay. about it. Cerebellar ataxia um, is an obvious clinical presentation of people who have problems with the cerebellum, and you know they have a wide gait that's unsteady because they're having to overcompensate. For so you not. can still make the movements, but you can't respond to what happens when the movements don't occur perfectly. Y- yes, or you don't have the fine tuning that comes down from the cerebellum to sort of nudge things in the direction with fine detail that they're supposed to be. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got it. I got yeah, it. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah no, I'm just thinking about running examples. And, yeah, go on. G- give us a running. No, I was just thinking because when you run, you know, your, your gait isn't doesn't stay the same for the whole run. It changes and it modifies, and it's all cerebellum. Yeah, and you reminded me then of the of the thing you said. The second main function of the cerebellum, there is a learning function of the cerebellum. When you're learning, in particular, um, tasks that involve fine motor command, so mm. you're learning to knit or you're learning to to uh, a sport or something like that some of that learning do- is stored in to be blunt the cerebellum yeah my example is your signature is stored in your cerebellum your signature yeah yeah, yeah there you go um one other thing that's um a couple of other things that are interesting about the cerebellum we didn't really mean to talk about the cerebellum but here since we we're go. here oh we're off now since we're here um i think that if, if i'm right uh a dear anatomist the very word cerebellum means something like little brain. Yeah. And it anatomically is a bit wacky because it has a sort of entirely separate little brain structure all of its own. It has a cortex and a... Yeah, it's very folded, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, I think the the terminology is, or the, the fact is that it has, it's one-tenth of the volume of the brain, something like that. It's a fraction of the volume of the brain, but it has more neurons in it than the rest of the brain put together. Sounds right. Because it has loads of dinky little neurons in it. Yeah, yeah. Because they're important for giving fine command, fine detail. And an interesting tidbit about the biology of the cerebellum is that the neurons in the cerebellum are very, very sensitive to alcohol. So that's why you get wobbly. Exactly. Uh, Why are they more susceptible to alcohol? Is it their neurotransmitters? Um... Is it their, their receptors? Yes, I, I think, yes. I, I, I'm going to say I couldn't tell you with molecular accuracy what the, the, the detail of that, except that lots and lots and lots of the neurons of the cerebellum are gabaergic. We learned from a previous podcast seven and a half years yeah. ago <laughs> that um, GABA, GABA receptors are a main molecular target of alcohol. I assume there's something about the, the particular composition of GABA receptors in the cerebellum that makes them very sensitive to alcohol. And so, yes, when you look at that uh, chart yeah. about the biological behavioural effects of alcohol, one of the first thing that happens is you get a bit wobbly. And that's because your cerebellum, cerebellar function is impaired. Cool. It's a good factor. Uh, Same for the pub, that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, my cerebellum is now going. Yeah. Um, of course, if you think about what the cerebellum is doing, uh, it's coordination and error checking of fine motor movements yeah that function is really 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 important for talking for speaking yeah yeah because you're moving your tongue and your larynx very very fine movements allow you to to make differentiation between sounds yeah and of course something else that's an early indicator of uh, low but intoxicating blood alcohol levels slurred speech exactly and that's Mm. the same thing your Mm. cerebellum is losing the ability to coordinate the movement mm. of those muscles uh, and then there is um, an aspect of very long-term chronic heavy alcoholism it's, neurons are not very good with alcohol um, their function is impaired by it quite quickly and it's quite toxic to them and the cerebellar neurons in particular and so people who drink a lot for a long time years and years and years mm. they knacker their cerebellum basically and so people with uh, cerebellar ataxia or a form of it is one of the symptoms or signs of um, long-term alcohol abuse yeah right okay i take it that's irreversible is it irreversible damage yes um once your cerebellum is damaged it's uh, yeah 
yeah, it's difficult. As with all of those lower parts of the brain, you, you, it's difficult to restore function. There, there are examples, very rare but interesting examples, of people who are born without a cerebellum. Right. So there's an example we use in some of the teaching of a lady who I think was 24 years old, mm-hmm. uh, went to see her doctor because um, she'd always been a bit unsteady. Yeah. Um, vertigo, mm. you know, motion sickness and things like that. Um, had been developmentally delayed, yeah. uh, but was otherwise okay. Yeah. Uh, couldn't figure out what it was. Were worried that, for example, a brain tumor or something. Yeah. Stuck her in a scanner, no cerebellum. Wow, but otherwise she was okay. She was fine. Yeah, and when when you start, if you took a normal, healthy human adult and locked off the cerebellum, they would be in very bad shape. Yeah. But if you start without a cerebellum, the nervous system, the central nervous system, is sufficiently plastic that you can adapt mm. um, other bits and pieces. I mean, this is what's going on when you're learning to move as a baby and exactly. learning to walk. This is all This is all building. You don't come out with it built, ready to go. Exactly. You're not a giraffe, ready to run away. Sorry, giraffe, that's a bit of a, bit of a long step. <laughs> hey, there's a double pun in there. So wait, so as a giraffe, I'm born to run, as Bruce Springsteen would say? Yeah. Yeah, like equine animals and what have you. As soon as they're born, foals, they're stood up and ready to go okay. to mm-hmm. escape the predator. But there are a whole bunch of other good reasons for that. They don't have big cerebellums and small pelvises to squeeze through and things like that. We're, we're born at a very early age. <laughs> <laughs> we're born at a very early... You mean a very early, deve- early developmental stage? Exactly. This yeah. is the developmental biologist and him coming through now. Yeah, yeah. our brains are too big. Uh, anyway, so how are we doing with, with movement? That, okay, so we've covered... I think we've covered lots of it. Um, there's probably <laughs> covered lots of it. Well, <laughs> how are we doing in the structure of your four parts? I think we've more or less covered, more or less covered the, the four parts and what they do. There's a couple of important anatomical details I think we probably need to go over with regard to parts, um, to part two, the upper motor neurons. Um, okay. What what we tell students at the beginning of some of this teaching is that the, approximately half the nervous system is dedicated to movement. Yeah. Which is why it's complicated and got a lot to talk about. Um, the first thing let's just cover briefly is the somatotropic organisation of the motor cortex and the somatosensory cortex. In fact, let's go back to the ascending tracts, the sort of the the, the sensory stuff. The sensory stuff. Dorsal columns, spinothalamic tracts, that sort of thing. Okay, so why don't you explain to our listener what those ascending tracts are and what the difference between them is and why that's important? So the, tr- the tracts are just, they're just bundles of neurons, a bit like the peripheral nerves are just bundles of neurons. They're just all squidged together and you get a spinal cord. So the dorsal columns are layers, kind of like flat sheets of neurons doing a similar sort of thing lumped together in the dorsal part of the spinal cord the back you mean yeah (laughs) the spinothalamic tract is a tract going from the spinal cord spino to the thalamus um and that's um, a little bit more lateral in the white matter so this is all white matter stuff because these neurons are covered in in myelin um and they they carry slightly different information the trick is remembering which so the dorsal columns carry proprioception and fine motor 
control, is that it? And then the, the spinal thalamic tracks carry most of the other things, like the gross touch, pain, temperature, yeah, all that sort of thing, right? Yeah, and I think what I think is from a, a year one medical student perspective, I think if you've got the basics of where and what the spinal thalamic tract is and the mm. dorsal columns, you, you're in pretty good shape. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are lots of of other details of those tracts and other tracts but really those are the two main ascending tracts yeah having an understanding of how the spinal cord is organized just makes it a little bit more a little bit less um like magic <laughs> it makes it a bit more structural magic it makes it a bit more sensible <laughs> yeah when you realize that these are groups of neurons they're organized together and just it, it, the spinal cord like makes a bit more sense okay so the the main organization then of this second part, the upper motor neuron part, is you've got the the motor neurons coming down from the motor cortex. Yeah. Synapsing onto the, the, the first part that we talked about, the final yeah. pathway. And then you've got the sensory information coming back up. And that comes up to the primary somatosensory cortex. Which is posterior to the central sulcus. Exactly. So they're next to each other, divided by a gap. Exactly. The arrangement of those regions is somatotropic, I believe that's the correct word, i.e. there is a chunk of the primary motor cortex that's dedicated to moving, say, the knee or the thumb or a chunk dedicated to the lips or the tongue, yeah. for example. Um, rather than them all coordinating together to move specific bits, when you are moving your jaw, there's a particular part of your motor cortex that's activated. And when you're receiving sensory information back from your jaw, there's a particular part of the sensory cortex that receives and processes that information. Yeah. And the organization of those structures reflects, I think, the sensitivity with which, or the detail with which we can move and receive sensory information from individual structures. Yes. So we've got a massive chunk of the motor cortex dedicated to moving the muscles of the face and the, the tongue. Yeah. Um, elbow, not so much. And so yeah. when there's discrete damage to particular parts of either of those regions, then it's going to be expressed in that way. And then when we have things like phantom limb pain, that's in part because of this rewiring whereby uh, the sensory input from a particular part of the body is no longer there because the body, part of the body itself is no longer there, but the parts of body that on the sensory cortex and next to it move into that part of the sensory cortex. Oh. And, and there's just general confusion, sensory confusion. Right, right. So that's the, the, the penultimate thing to say about that, I think. Um, and many people will have seen in popular science sort of 3D depictions of the homunculus yeah. as, a, as a small person with a giant head and giant hands and giant feet. And Laid across the uh, somatosensory cortex. Yes. Um, the final thing to say then really, or the final big thing to talk about, is decussation. Oh yeah, that was it. I knew there was something. He's jumping in his chair. Listening. Yeah. No, I was just trying to remember what was, how this was structured. If you go around the houses a bit. It's true, but then it's, you know, there's a lot of it, isn't there? So, yeah. So, on its way down the spinal cord, have we actually used the phrase corticospinal tract yet? No. Corticospinal, going from the cortico, cortex, to the spinal cord. Correct. And we probably should have said a while ago that, that 
all of our upper motor neurons aggregated together form the corticospinal tract. And there are a couple of tracts on either side. There's anterior and lateral. Yes. Anterior goes mostly to the body wall, I think, and then lateral does everything else. I'm going to take your word for that. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> that's, that's anatomy. So the anterior stuff doesn't really decussate as much as the, the lateral corticospinal tract. Yes, and decussation itself basically means at some point on its journey down the from the cortex, the upper motor neurons cross over from one side of the spinal cord to the other. Yeah, and the reason I'm comfortable with this is that when you look at a brain, you look at the brain stem, when you look at the medulla oblongata, you can see those two ridges, and those are the corticospinal tracts there, and that's where the decussation occurs. That's where they cross from one side of the body to the other in the medulla. And that, uh, that structure, I believe, is called the decussation of the pyramids. Yeah. Because it's pyramidal neurons that are crossing over. So if a simple and functionally important way to think about this then is is how you end up with the right side of your brain controlling the movement of the left side of your body and sensory input does the same thing right yes so it comes in sensory information from your left foot will come into your spinal cord and cross over and head up the right side of your spinal cord more or less well yeah the sensory stuff's more complicated than the motor stuff the motor stuff pretty much all crosses over in the medulla but the sensory stuff crosses over at different levels depending upon whether it's in the spinothalamic tract or in the dorsal columns. And that, I think, is... That's really important from a clinical examination perspective, as I've understood it, because it may allow you to determine where and what damage has occurred if sensory different types of sensory information are impaired or altered um, on one side of the body. Yeah, and that usually means that one side of the spinal cord has been affected and the other side is unaffected. brown saccard syndrome. That's right. Yeah. You've talk, you, I, we don't even need to talk about it. It's covered. That, that is a hell of a thing to try and explain to anybody without a whiteboard <laughs> as to the anatomy of why it occurs. Well, you know, we're deep into this now, Sam. But because they... Can I do it simply? Because they cross... Because the sensory input, um, depending upon whether it goes through the dorsal columns or the spinothalamic tract, crosses at slightly different levels, either at the top of the spinal cord or lower down in the spinal cord. It means that if one side of the spinal cord is damaged, a patient might lose um, proprioceptive and uh, fine-touch information on the one side, but then lose pain, gross touch, temperature sensation on the opposite side. But both of those things are caused by one lesion on the same side of the spinal cord. He's it's, done it. It's you very confusing and very complicated. But well, I think I think you've got. I think that's it. That's basically it. You, you differential sensory information can be differentially affected by, uh, in terms of what side it's being affected by, a single lesion on in one side that affects only one side of the spinal cord. Whereas the motor stuff's a lot more straightforward. If the right side of the spinal cord is injured and it's having a motor effect, then it's the right side of the body that's going to be affected. It's going to be weaker because they've already crossed over by that point. Absolutely. And that is part of the whole examination and consideration of things like Brown-Saccard syndrome. Yeah. So, Sam, why does it all cross over? Nobody knows. You, you had said you had a theory. Yeah, no, there's a couple of cool theories. So the, the, the most common one is that it is a, um, it's a physical thing. So the, the central nervous system is very soft, 
So if they cross over, maybe it's binding the central nervous system together so it doesn't fall apart so easily. Nah. The really fun one, the really fun He's one. He's grinning. He's beaming yeah. from ear to ear. Now. All right, so consider your fish, your okay. evolutionary ancient fish. I do that quite a lot. Um, they've got two eyes, and the information from each retina crosses to the other side of the brain, right? Just uh-huh. as it does with us animals, us uh, humans, primates. Um, the idea is that in fish, you don't get this decussation in okay. the spinal cord. So the fish sees a predator on the right side, maybe just in the right peripheral part of their vision, right? So the instinct then is that that information goes across the left side of the brain, and from the left side of the brain, the left the uh, the nerves go down the left side of the spinal cord to innervate the muscles on the left side of the fish, which causes it to bend away from the stimulus, from the threat, and it oh, swims away. Okay. Now, when you look at um, things that have crawled out of the sea evolutionarily, so lizards and that sort of thing, and they've got they've got upper limbs now and lower limbs. Uh, they their spinal cords they have a, this decussation of of motor tracts from one side to the other. So they've got the same issue. Their eyes have evolved a little bit more, and you know how um, visual fields cross over partially and what have you. Right? Uh-huh. But but the lateral visual field. So you've seen your pre- predator in the corner of your of your eye. That still crosses to the other side of your brain. But then, because you've got arms or legs, what happens is that that information crosses from the, the left side of the brain back across the decussation to the right side of the body because that's the limb you need to move to push yourself away from the threat. Double decussation. Yeah. It's a really cool idea. It's, it's, I think it's almost impossible to prove, but it's very interesting. I like it. It was in Nature a while ago, or one of the Nature papers, I think, ages ago. And, and it's evolutionarily more straightforward to evolve double decussation, as it effectively is, yeah. than just to go from the right side down the right side. It's more evolutionarily likely, isn't it? Than to unevolve the first yeah, cross. Exactly. Huh. Although I do think there are people who, there are some people, a minority of the population, for whom there is no decussation. Is, is that, that right? right? Uh, I was looking for you to verify. No, that. I haven't come across that. That's a line on my slide, so oh, yeah, it could be. Now we, we see all sorts of strange things in in human anatomy, but I haven't I haven't come across that. An undecussated individual. Wow, how would that happen? I don't know. Um, okay, I think, listener, I hope you're happy. Uh, we've covered as best we can. In the oral medium, uh, the visual information of the anatomy and function of, of the neurobiology of movement in an you know, introductory, basic way, the key bits of information that a year one or two medical student probably needs. No wonder you put it off for seven years. I think it's not that bad. I think it's all right. I think it's good. Um, I, I, I don't think it's that bad. It's just, you know, it's, it's not the sort of neuroscience that. I find particularly interesting. You shied away from it because of the anatomy. You shied and away from it because it goes outside the brain. That's all it is. And there's a lot of anatomy involved. And, you know, we just oh. haven't had the time. Hey, there's plenty more neuroscience lectures we need to cover, you know. Yeah. What other ones have you got to do? <laughs> I oh, don't know. I just start with it. I've got what we've done. It's been so long. So we're going to start. We're good. That's it. This is, we're on a roller. We're going to bang these out yeah. every every seven years Media. until we retire. <laughs> yeah. Every seven years. Yeah. Um, no, I think we can do... I, if I'm promised to do one now, then I'm a hostage to my own promise. Aren't no, because you've been promising to do this one for seven years. We? 
You. Okay. I'm oh, just the same man. Anyway, no, I think that was good. I think it's important to consider the brain with the rest of the body. That's yeah. biology. Nothing works in isolation. No, absolutely. Uh, and if, if something, yeah, this is probably adding into the listener's understanding of different bits, filling in the gaps, yeah. shoring things up maybe. Because it takes a few goes at this sort of thing. Particularly the anatomy and, and wiring of the motor system. Yeah. Like you say, I have done a video on this, which yeah. was stressful to do made up with pipe cleaners and stuff but so we should probably close by advising dear listener to go and watch uh youtube video number i have no idea number just do a search sam webster um decussation we'll probably bring it up actually we talk about decussations in that yeah go watch that now and hopefully anything that wasn't clear will become crystal (laughs) all right ever the optimist Thanks, Phil. Right, same time, same place um, next decade. In 2025. Cool.